All right, welcome to episode two of Gamma Project. I am Dean Statman, your host. Let's get this show on the road. This episode is brought to you by Ultra. Ultra, that's A-L-T-R-A, makes shoes that allow you to run the way you were born to. Ultra's founders noticed something, that the design of most running shoes was hurting runners more than helping them. In traditional running shoes, elevated heels promote a high impact landing and narrow pointy toe boxes squeeze the toes out of their natural position, increasing risk of bunions, hammer toes, and plantar fasciitis. So, a couple of years ago, Ultra founder Golden Harper began melting off the outsoles and removing the excess heel elevation from his traditional running shoes. It was ugly. I mean, he did it in a toaster oven after all. But it worked. And the term zero drop was coined to describe the level cushioning and perfect weight balance from heel to forefoot. Every ultra running shoe features a fully cushioned zero drop platform that places the heel and forefoot at the same distance from the ground. This natural balance aligns the feet, the back and body posture for less impact. It also strengthens the Achilles and lower calf muscles that have been weakened over a lifetime of running on elevated heels. Ultra's foot-shaped toe box allows the toes to relax and spread out naturally, while allowing the big toe to remain in a straight position. This enhances stability and creates a powerful toe-off to maximize running performance. I was introduced to Ultra a couple of years ago, and their running shoes have since become a sort of secret weapon for me. I break them out for especially grueling runs, and when it's time to go off-road, their trail shoes are the only ones I will wear. The Lone Peak, in particular, is a personal favorite, which may or may not have to do with me getting lost in the French Alps for four hours while wearing them. This spring, Ultra wants you to embrace the space and get fired up for taking your runs outside with their lineup of fast and light road shoes. One model to check out, for sure, is the Ultra Duo, which features 31mm cushioning beneath both the forefoot and the heel, and it weighs in at a crazy light 7.5 ounces. If you're interested in checking out the Duo, you can head to fleetfeetsports.com, that's F-L-E-E-T-F-E-E-T, sports.com, and they'll be available there through March. Ultra is also committed to helping runners avoid injury by teaching efficient, low-impact running technique. Golden, who, by the way, ran a world record 245 marathon when he was 12 years old, taught me everything I know about running with proper form. By focusing on four core pillars, we totally overhauled my running form and noticeably improved both my running performance and efficiency. In case you're curious, since you are listening to a podcast about self-improvement, those four pillars were, number one, establishing a forward momentum posture, which is to say leaning forward, and Golden has a great way of teaching this where he will have you lean forward as far as you can, kind of picture yourself in a Michael Jackson music video, and just as you're about to fall forwards, that's your lean, and that's where you should be running, and it helps tremendously. Number two utilizing a proper arm swing, which is to say having your arms swinging straight forward and back, not across your body, but also not allowing your elbow to cross your midline and end up in front of your chest. Number three, cultivating low impact landings, which is running without stomping the ground, landing lighter on your feet and using your legs as springs, as opposed to relying on your footwear to be a spring. And lastly, maintaining a high cadence, simply taking more steps to cover the same amount of distance. 
You can find more information on those, which I encourage you to check out if you are a runner, along with all kinds of advice and tips for proper running form, as well as, of course, information on all of Ultra's products at ultrarunning.com. And that's A-L-T-R-A-R-U-N-N-I-N-G.com. Hello, world. My name is Dean Statman, again, and welcome to episode two of Gamma Project. Welcome back. Today's guest is Mubarak Malik, or as he is better known, Bar Malik. Bar is the director of performance and science for the New York Knicks. That is, for the less sports savvy among us, the NBA team that calls New York City home that isn't the Brooklyn Nets. And if you don't know that, um, because maybe basketball or even sports in general aren't your thing, that's okay, because I promise you, you don't need to know a single thing about sports to enjoy this episode and benefit from what you are about to hear. Barr and I met last year after being introduced by a mutual friend, Dan Giordano, founder of Bespoke Treatments Physical Therapy, which I recommend if you ever need physical therapy. And to give you an idea of just how quickly Barr and I clicked, that very same day that we met, we started working together on a project. We met up for a workout. Um, it was Barr, myself, Dan was there, and the girl I was dating at the time was there. And this was right after Hurricanes Harvey and Irma hit Texas and Florida, respectively. So after working out together, the four of us went to get brunch, as is customary in New York City. You work out, then you get brunch, and then someone orders avocado toast, and then you all take pictures of it. And there and then, we as a group decided to organize a charity fitness event. We called it Box Bike Burn, because we got three studios involved. Everybody Fights, Swerve Fitness, and Dog Pound. And in one day, we raised $5,000 for the American Red Cross's hurricane relief efforts. Barr and I have been friends ever since, and I was beyond stoked when he agreed to be on the show. Now in his sixth season with the Knicks, Barr is heavily involved in player development, working with some of the biggest stars in the NBA. He travels with the Knicks throughout the season, and helps to ensure that players are optimizing their time both on and off the court. From exercise to recovery, he takes a 360-degree approach to performance, and some of his insights, as you'll see, are just plain fascinating. To record the interview that you're about to hear, Barr and I caught up in New York City, right before he was scheduled to head off to Atlanta with the Knicks. One of my favorite things about this conversation I touched on this before, and really this is the goal of every Gamma Project episode, is that regardless of whether you're a diehard NBA fan or you don't know a swish from a touchdown, there is a lot for you here that can be applied to several aspects of your life, no matter what you do professionally or where you're currently at personally or in the grand scheme of things. That said, if you are interested in sports, particularly how pro athletes train and continue to improve their performance over time, you're in for some really cool insights from behind the scenes at the most elite level. Here, Barr talks about the most productive habits he sees in his players, all of which you can adopt for yourself. The habits, probably not the players. He describes in great detail the tactics he uses and that you can use to optimize both physical and mental performance. And then we also get away from the court to talk about things like how to deal with the loss of a loved one, which, if you remember, also came up in the last episode with Philip Picardi, which was incidentally also the first episode. But it's something that we all end up dealing with eventually, so it is worth the revisit. And if you are listening to this and you are currently going through loss, I'm sure there will be useful information for you here. We also talk about journaling, we talk about accountability, we talk about the importance of connecting with friends, with family, with nature, and much, much more. During the first few minutes of this episode, we spend quite a bit of time talking about the path that led Barr to where he is today, both professionally and personally. And that's because I'm a huge fan of context. One of the things I'm always interested in is how successful and influential people arrived at the jobs they have. Because often, 
what you find, almost always in fact, is that it's not simply a case of showing up for the interview and getting the job. Relationships, persistence, grit, failure, these are almost always part of the story, and Barr's case is no exception. So, we start by getting into all of that to paint a fuller picture and ultimately set the scene for what comes next, which is a full court press to employ the only basketball term I will use in this entire interview, of practical strategies, tips, and actionable tactics that you can absorb into your own routine and reach whatever goals you have for yourself. So, without further ado, here is my conversation with Bar Malik. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Of course, man. Been uh, wanting to get you in here for a while. Yeah, schedule's been kind of crazy on both of our sides, so I'm finally glad that we could take an hour and sit down and just talk a little bit about what what we're both up to. Absolutely. So, tell me... I want to start off with you just sort of telling me about what you do. Um, your, start with your title and yeah. what that entails. Um, so right now I'm Director of Performance and Science with the New York Knicks. Um, now what that entails is a, it's a conglomerate of different um, entities that involve sports science, which is the managing and monitoring of internal versus external load. So the amount of um, energy the athlete expends versus the reaction to that energy they expend over the course of a practice or a game. Then you have uh, strength and conditioning, so I oversee all the development of the individualized programs. I write them, I direct them, um, and I, I take all of our players through different tests to find out their rate limiting factor. So from position, positional breakdown, uh, from age, from injury history, um, position, inter and interrelated variabilities that we have to manage, I design individual strength and conditioning programs for both our starters and also our players who don't play as many minutes. And then there's the um, recovery piece of it uh, that we have to organize to we get our players to understand the, the benefit of utilizing certain tools, you know, whether it's cryotherapy, uh, whether it's soft tissue management, whether it be treatment or manipulation. I, mean, I have to program this stuff into a package so that players are educated enough to utilize what we have from a training staff capacity and also from a tool capacity to recover quicker and learn how to use certain tools with the most research to support how they feel with using certain certain recovery strategies. So it's just a, it's an all-encompassing position, and it's uh, literally 24 hours a day. Wow, that is fascinating yeah. and sounds so involved. <laughs> um, so there are a couple things in there that I want to sort of dig into. Yeah. But um, I think one question that a lot of people listening to this will want to know the answer to, most people, I would say guys, but really it's people, would kill to work with a pro sports team. Yeah. What was your path to get to where you are now? Um, it was unorthodox. I mean, I, I grew up, you know, obviously I love basketball, um, but it, for me to get into this position, I had to go in a different direction that didn't involve basketball. And I wouldn't change it because it, it made me more prepared once I was given the opportunity to work here with the Knicks. So I started off, um, I went to school for exercise and sports medicine, uh, master's degree in sports science and sports human movement performance. Um, I started as an intern working in minor league baseball, and I spent two and a half years on a bus traveling like a thousand miles um, every five days with the Pittsburgh Pirates in their lowest level of minor league baseball. Um, however, it's pro sports, so early on at 23 years old, I was exposed to just the nature of dealing with a professional athlete. You know, Even though you're in the minor leagues, you still have your first round picks versus your 48th round pick, and the first round picks are normally the best players in that draft class, and they start off in low A. So I was able to work with the player very early on in my career where the attention to detail and the risk of error, I couldn't afford to make that, you know? So that taught me, you know, just as far as how to program for an athlete, how to mentally uh, prepare and just interact with someone of that caliber. And I did that for two and a half years and that led to uh, being promoted in my third year to work with the major league baseball team in Pittsburgh. And I used to spend my time between AAA and major league baseball. That's when travel was involved, um, the different assessments, the different ways of trying to manipulate the, the different um, variables in season uh, to get players to buy into being ready to perform at any given moment. Um, and and in, my, in the major leagues, the, the, the average age is about 28 because they have to go through minor league baseball. So I was 24, 25, so I was working with guys that were older than me at that time. 
And it just rushed the process of me learning how to deal with a professional organization being told exactly where someone should be at a certain time. Okay, this person is, is weak or strong in this area. This is the area we should focus on in season because there's not much wiggle room to change tissue dexterity and also their strength and performance variables in season. And then with travel, altitude training, travel, sickness, immunity, you learn that because you're traveling in and out of cities every four days of MLB. So I did that for three years, um, and that's where I've learned, I guess, the foundational components of learning how to be a strength coach, a mental skills professional, and then um, just tacking on just the, um, the discipline and also, I guess you could say, the grit to working with an athlete every day with no days off. So I did that for five years, uh, got out of professional sports for two, and I started working with a company called Athletes Performance at the time. Now it's called Exos. Um, and they are in Phoenix, Arizona. They focuses on their only focus is professional athletes, the older professional athletes. They have a certain systematic way of training athletes with nine different pillars that involve recovery, nutrition, movement skills, um, power, strength, capacity, all these different components. And for a long time, they were the best in the business. So if I was going to get out of pro sport at any moment, it would have been to work with probably a company of that stature. The only reason I was able to work with them was because during that time period, they were looking at piloting a program for the government. So I, I never mm. spent any time in the military. I don't have a military background, but I thought that it would be cool to be put in an environment where I had no idea what was going on and all I could do was fail and then get through it and be better at the end of the day. So I did that for two and a half years and the schedule was so strict, meaning we could only train three times a day and training started at 6 a.m. and it was over at 2 p.m. You couldn't do anything else because you're on government time. So I had so much time to kill because I was used to working from 7 in the morning to midnight coming out of baseball. So on my downtime, I used to have all these different tools that would measure like heart rate variability, saliva testing, brain wave, brain wave efficiency, autonomic nervous system, and all these different parasympathetic ways of looking at how an athlete just is ready or not ready for activity because I had downtime. So being able to study all that stuff during that period, when I got an opportunity to volunteer here with the Knicks, I was already prepared in the direction that they were looking to go because I had all the professional experience from minor league and major league baseball. I had the program design and all the different um, variables to interplay with because I had the philosophy from Exos, which was the best at that time. And then I was training myself to learn tools that I'd never been exposed to hoping that one day that I would get an opportunity to work with a higher level athlete and I can manage the variables better because I have data and unquantifiable variables now to, to use along with the program design that I've acquired up to that point. So I got I volunteered here in 2012. Um, I interviewed for the job in 2013, didn't get it. Someone else got it and he ended up resigning and then, you know, the opportunity came back around and I was here as an assistant in 2013. Still had all the knowledge I had, but there was someone else already incorporating the sports science, the different ways to monitor, you know, training load. And I just had to wait my time to to build something that was special enough that, you know, if they were to get rid of an entire staff, there would be a systematic way of measuring every variable that no matter who was here, it could be still used for years to come. And that opportunity came in 2015 where, you know, we built like an uh, athlete management system from the ground up. And you know it's not it's not you can't it's not um it's nothing that can be replicated in the league, and it measures everything from sleep, all the way down to you know massage therapy and we like it and since that time I've been promoted to director of training and performance in sports science and that's why I'm here today. Wow, that's incredible. <laughs> so all of those metrics you were just talking about now, like sleep and massage therapy and all of that, you're referring to the Knicks. Yes. What kind of you know so um so many people now use things like Fitbits, Apple Watches, and yeah. we're, we're so obsessed, we're becoming this sort of data-obsessed society, and I think the funny part of that is very few of us actually use the data, um, and I'm guilty of it myself. Yeah. I'll feel bad if I don't wear my <laughs> Apple Watch one day because I'm like, I'm not getting the data, yeah. but I never even look at the data. Yeah. Um, what what metrics do you care about for your athletes? Uh, I care about, uh, one, I think, you know, whatever we use, it has to be very valid and reliable and low cost. Um, because we find that in an environment where um, the athletes really aren't educated on why we're using it, the more simplistic the device is and the less that it costs, the easier I can justify it not being used. So I would go with high validity, high reliability, and easiest cost. I mean, lowest cost. And I look at heart rate uh, recovery percent, and what that tells me is that the amount of time that your, your body spends 
getting rid of oxygen, recurring its levels, it stays back to its closest as possible to its resting normal heart rate. And depending on if it's a higher intensity activity or a lower intensity activity throughout the course of a week, that percent should be within a certain threshold. And I like to look at that to make sure the guys are fit and active. And then also their max heart rate. So, you know, throughout the, the, the season, we measure, you know, different training sessions to see what their response would be internally from a hard practice or a light practice. So if I know, you know, November 21st that, you know, your heart rate was 181 and it's the same exact drill that we did two weeks ago, three weeks ago, and it was 161, then that's a red flag. It's an indication of something else is going on. So then I have to go back and look at, okay, is he not sleeping? Is he stressed out? Is he still covering the same amount of distance? If he is covering the same amount of distance, is his speed still the same? So I like to look at heart rate because the heart rate tells me a lot internally about what the athlete is actually experiencing without giving me a number beside it because I can see it and I can see it in real time. So heart rate is something big that we use and I like to use as well. Interesting. So when you when you mentioned you know doing a drill and then doing it again two weeks later, are you over the long term looking for their heart rate to actually be going down? Yeah, it should be going. Drill? Yeah, we should be. It should be we want to see um, the heart rate go down, and we look at acute versus chronic. So the last four weeks of training, how does your heart rate respond over the last four weeks, and measure that over what is going on within this current week and between zero point five and one point five. That's your sweet spot, and we look at that. So we're always trying to make sure guys are fit throughout the course of a year because you, you know it's so hard to um, to practice at a certain capacity because you play games every other day. You know, football is different; you play once a week. Baseball, it's not as much high intensity distance, you know, being expended in a baseball game, and just the nature of the game isn't as chaotic as basketball. So you have to be very, very particular about how you pro- program your practices. But if you look at that ratio and you see that that threshold is starting to creep up, oh, sorry, creep down, the ratio is closer together, and you know you know that okay, this is an opportunity where we have to just we have to hit them hard. So the volume has to increase, the intensity has to increase, and we have to have a heavier or higher intensity strength training session to follow that. And that's what we do. We actually did that the other day because we we saw that number starting to go lower, and that's the fine line that you're trying to toe, you know, all the time because if you do too much of it. You increase your risk of injury. Mm-hmm. But now research is coming out now. If you don't do enough of it because the tissue isn't stressed enough, you also expose yourself to risk of injury. So it's like, okay, you have to just walk that, that rope every day and hopefully you make the right decisions based off of what their heart rate is telling you at that real time. Cool. Now, um, a couple of minutes ago, you used the phrase, you said no days off. What do you mean by that? Because I'm sure that you don't mean training every single day. Yeah. We just don't have, you know, we don't have days off. You know, we, I think in the CBA, uh, CBA this year, maybe they gave us, I think you have to have four days a month off now. But mm-hmm. before, I mean, you have either practice day, it's a game day, recovery or travel. And back in the day, not even back in the day, I'd say five years, I've only been in the league five years, a travel day wasn't considered an off day. But, I mean, they, some people consider a travel day an off day, but it's not. I mean, you're up at 8, 8, you're up at 8 a.m., you're spending time with each other. Totally. You know, you're you're still flying across a different time zone. And you've still got to be on, you know. If you still got to be on, you yeah. on the shoulder and say, what do I eat right now? No, yeah, so <laughs> it's time under tension. I say all the time. So the time I'm with them or the time that staff is interacting with the players, it's not. There's nothing that they can control. We just have everything lined up for them to be successful and win that day. But, yeah, until recently, um, you have a game day, a practice day, a travel day, and a recovery day. And everything is mandatory. There's no days off for the team. Right. In my position, there are no days off. You know, and this job has evolved, even in the off season, to just it's every day, three hundred sixty-five days a year. Because even when you're not at the training center, you're out visiting guys in LA, in Europe, Pan Am games, different ways of trying to contact them. You have to physically go and reach out to them. So, as director of performance, you just still have to you know, have to travel and make sure guys are following their off season plans. Their fitness levels are where it should be going into the off season and coming back for preseason and. It just doesn't stop. So I want to rewind a little bit over here. Um, yeah. You mentioned you grew up playing basketball, and then you had you went um, minor league, and then major league, and then NBA. When you first, so I guess this would be either around the minor league time or maybe going into major league, when you really started working with those top caliber athletes, what was the first, and just as sort of a human experience, like what was the first kind of qualities you noticed in these people? Because pro athletes are very different yeah. from, I don't want to say regular people, but really it's a, it's another level they just catch on quicker you know they you know they don't 
they are very they're masters at doing something so you know you don't have to overload them with a lot of different descriptors you know you show them something and they can do it immediately and is it when you say they catch on to things do you mean you know like specifically in basketball like if you show them a drill and they'll just start nailing it or are they generally you know 360 like quick learners and there are other ways you see that manifest yeah just you know whenever they're introduced to something if it's something that they want to do whether it's poker car games video games bowling pool ping pong stuff that they enjoy and to include obviously their craft which is basketball i mean it's they really learn it so quickly that it's almost like an unfair advantage because their nervous system is just so primed that they are masters of just knowing where their bodies are in space so they can easily do anything that's physical that they enjoy doing and catch on like that i mean it's it's unfair because they've been exposed to something for so long and that's the reason they're genetically programmed to move a certain way so any activity that involves physicality they catch on right away and the different types of like poker chess some of your more mindful games they catch on if they want to learn if they want to learn they catch on it's unfair now i want to go back again you mentioned you grew up playing basketball take me back like take me back there like where did you grow up how did you grow up? Man, tell me about tell me about family man, life. I love basketball. I mean, my, I have my niece here. She could tell you. I mean, I I was probably one of the best in my county. I was the smallest. I was you know four eleven, one hundred twenty pounds. But you just couldn't tell me. I By wasn't. the way, if if you hear the sound of fire Instagram posts <laughs> going up during this, that's Vars uh, niece, <laughs> Lauren sitting right here. Um, I mean, I was just a fire plug, man. I just loved the game. I mean, I just I played since I was six. Um, and I was always too small, but I just loved the basketball court. I grew up in Philadelphia, right outside the suburb, and I started playing. When I was eight years old. Um, I played all the way through, like you know, little league basketball. Um, traveled around. I went to Vegas when I was like fourteen with one of like the AAU AAU clubs. Um, I used to play for one of the more prestigious AAU clubs in Philly. I played against um, growing up Jimmy Nelson. We're friends, so I grew up playing against him again in football and basketball. Cool. Um, I just love the game. It's very competitive. I like the uh, this team spirit. I just liked. I just love basketball. The hardwood, the noises, the, sne- the sneakers. Uh, my favorite player growing up was Allen Iverson because he was obviously at that time the best player Philadelphia had, had ever seen, and he was small. He played with a chip on his shoulder. Um, so yeah, I played all through high school. Um, I got recruited by a, div- a small Division three school. Thought I was better than what I was. Decided to walk on at VCU, which wasn't as dominant at the time. But they had some guys who could play. I mean, they had guys who were a foot taller than me who could do exactly what I did. So, I, was, I mean, it was very, very uh, grandiose for me to try to walk on, but I tried it. And that was my dream was to walk on to a Division One school, and I got denied, and I was, I was okay with it. At least I did it, right? So I, w- I decided to go back to a smaller school in Westchester, Pennsylvania, and I played one year. And um, I was happy, and I was happy with that. I knew I wasn't going to make it into the NBA. That was never my goal. I just liked the sport. And I just wanted to play competitively, whether it was recreation or college. And I gave it my all. I gave everything I, I could to, to make the team and be on a team. And I was satisfied with the results because I know I gave everything to it. And I said, you know, when I get older, at some point, you know, I wanted to be a physical therapist. So initially, my track was, you know, exercise, sports science to be a physical therapist. So I didn't know that I could be a physical therapist or a strength and conditioning coach or a performance director without um, going to five more years of school. So when I had an internship with the Pirates, I was like, oh, you know what? Why can't I just figure out what makes these athletes go and load, you know, still have a corrective exercise kind of awareness because that was my track. But why not figure out what makes them go? You know, how do you add on horsepower? You know, what, how does the brain and the body connect? And, you know, how can I make them bigger, faster, and stronger, quicker, and maybe take a different path? And that's when I was like, well, you know what? At some point, I can't play in the NBA but I will make it in the NBA at some capacity as a staff member. And I remember 2011, I still have the picture at home. Um, it's a Christmas game, and I've never been to Madison Square Garden, but my buddy used to work for the team, and he got me a ticket. So we drove up, my buddy and I, and um, we got, you know, we had floor passes, we had all these different passes, and I was just like, man, you know, how cool would it be, you know, to work for the Knicks? And this was 2011, and... Um, once I felt the electricity in the garden, I just was like, there's no other place that I would want to work. And I just put my head down, man, for three years. And was like, I have to figure out a way to make it here. And it just, it worked itself out, you know, so. Was there any option? No other option, you know. 
That's, that's where I wanted to be. There wasn't no other team. I wouldn't have been satisfied with the Sixers. My, one of my best friends worked for the Sixers. I'm from Philadelphia. It was the Knicks because I remember that Christmas game. It was a double overtime game. I think it was against Boston. Melo hit like a game-winning shot or something. It was just insane. Did was, your did your family or friends? I'm sure your friends had something to say about you leaving Philly and going to. There, they just gave me a hard time. He even it's even bad now. I mean, my niece is here. And I go to Philly, and they they're wearing Sixers jerseys. You know? So it was like <laughs> they were wearing Sixers jerseys in the family section. I'm like, you guys will get me fired. So, <laughs> You know, so they still give me a hard time, I and mean, they they root, they cheer for me. But when the Sixers win, they they make sure they let me know that hey, this is your hometown team. But they can't convince me. I'm brainwashed. You know, I'm New York yeah. City. I'm a Knicks fan. I'm Knicks diehard. And uh, it's good, man. We need but, you. <laughs> <laughs> we need you a lot. Yeah, my family. They're torn. They support me, but they're all Philadelphia. I mean, if you have you ever met a Philadelphia fan of anything, they're nuts. I mean. It's, it's a bond that you can't break, and uh, so they remind me of that every time I go home. So you mentioned, you know, observing what makes these athletes go, and you really get to observe the athletes a yeah. lot. So much success is made or broken on habits and yeah. routines. What are some of the habits, positive habits, that you see these players sort of engaging in that you feel might be, um, you know, instrumental towards their success? You know, it's interesting you say that because we, I think we do a, a pretty good job here in New York, per se, to try to, you know, try to stay on the cusp of what is out there for athletes to to be high performers and that starts with like you said daily habits of just preparing for a practice you can't just the days are over of just rolling up out of bed putting your shoes on driving to practice don't stretch don't do anything just just go ahead and play no you know so we have a relationship with uh with headspace so we do have accounts oh, cool. and uh, some players use it, some players don't but for whatever reason like some players like to get up and you know before practice starts they'll go in the, like a dark area and they'll do five five minutes of meditation um, but consistently, you know, throughout the days that these guys are just probably very consistent with is just the timing of, you know, the foods that they're trying to eat um, and the way they prepare, you know, for practice is, is really pretty much the same. We laid everything out there. So we literally had a, a, an intervention with a player the other day and we just went down every micro minute of what you should be doing. And it's, yeah, it's overkill, but maybe they'll follow three other different blocks of what we gave them and that keeps them in a systematic way of preparing for a practice. So mm-hmm. you eat breakfast at, if practice is at 9.30, you make sure you get out, you get here an hour before, right? So you get here an hour before, instead of scrolling on Instagram, coming in here on the phone, put your phone away, go eat some food, take your clothes off, go in a hot tub or a cold tub, whatever you need to do to get your body revved up. When you're in a hot tub or the cold tub, that's when you can kind of scroll through your phone because you only have your waist down. Right. In the, in the in the cold bath or the or the hot or the hot tub so and I think that's actually a an interesting place to pause for a second yeah um, I notice sometimes not all the time actually at gyms in the city yeah. and um, you know more higher end uh, studios like Tone House yeah where they'll have like a cold plunge or a yeah. hot tub and they'll actually have signs posted up saying you know do not submerge above your heart yeah why is that what happens is it is the temperature of the water it kills off blood vessels. Obviously, so your heart is pumping. I don't know what's a hundred quarts you know, per minute. So if it, if those blood vessels are restricted, you could just probably it could cause some damage internally that you probably just don't even want to experience. Okay, so it could because actually inhibit recovery. It could inhibit recovery. You know, now your body starts to go into fight or flight mode, and you won't get anything out of it besides, you know, your body trying to recuperate from the loss of oxygen. Gotcha. Um. So yeah, you just want to be mindful of that because of the temperature of the water. It's, it's fifty between fifty three and forty six forty six and fifty three degrees. So. You just don't want to go above heart rate, heart rate, heart rate level because okay. it's just dangerous to experience. So when it comes to you know habits of the players and also things that you try out with them uh, yeah. for like you know boosting performance, how much of the equation would you say? And by equation, I mean the, the success equation for a basketball team is just straight up consistency versus trying new things. Like, is there almost like a ratio? Like you know, it's like nine to one consistency to trying new things. Like ninety percent. Yeah, the same I would thing say ninety. 90% of just finding a routine and sticking with it because whether whatever the pillar is, whether it is, you know, stretching and mobility, movement preparation or dynamic activation, if it's strength, if it's power-based, if it's movement skills, if it's recovery, nutrition, or just psychosocial, those buckets don't change, right? So that is just a paradigm of high performance. Then you just put things in those buckets that you, the athlete likes to do because now it becomes systematic. So if you only like to do two different stretches because we noticed in your movement screen that 
you have tight ankles and tight hips, which are very common amongst basketball players because of their, their height, their wingspan, and just the nature of the game. Those are normally two of the most problematic areas that we see. If you don't want to do 50 million exercises for activation, if you don't like to lift a certain way because you're a veteran and this is how you've been doing your routine for the last 10 years, but we do things differently over here. Okay, this is your strength block. If you don't play a certain game and this is our conditioning that we have in this bucket, you pick one of these drills and we're going to stick with it. If you don't like cold bath, but you like to do cryotherapy, we'll do cryo. If you like cryo, we got recovery tights. If you don't want to do that, how about we order you Normatech? So anyway, everything fits in these buckets of just verticals. And we have our players choose out of these buckets because that is what a successful day looks like for us. And as long as they can just own that part of whatever they choose to do, that's where you see a success. It's when you start to change everything around. Right. So it's like know, recovery on a... Yeah. Uh, sorry, it's consistency on a... On a or rather, customization on a micro on a level, micro but not level. a macro level. Yeah. The macro buckets stay the same, stay but within those buckets, you they have some customization for each player. Yeah. We have points, and we give out... Um, so we try to incentivize it as much as we can because people like competition. Players do, too. And it's mm-hmm. amazing how you can watch like a competition turn into something that um, becomes very competitive. And we give out points and awards for people who can stick to these verticals the most, so they accrue points. So now each modality or tool is worth... A certain amount of points. So it sounds like when when parents will say like, "All right, kids, we're gonna play the yeah, quiet game now." But no, it is <laughs> like if you if you need to get a massage and you don't feel like waiting forty five minutes because some days guys just want to get out, right? But we know that from a soft tissue standpoint that that massage is going to do a lot more for you from a from a recovery aspect than just a foam roll. If you sacrifice it, if you sacrifice forty five minutes and get a massage, you'll get ten points. If you don't. You want to just get out of here and you want to do foam roll? Yeah, I mean, there's some benefits to it. And if you get 100 points, do you get a gold star? Yeah, you do. Or if you don't get 100 points, believe it or not, like our GM and our president, they can see that. And like, hey, you know, is Dean doing enough recovery-wise? Oh, wow, so you a, escalate that. You, you, really, you make yeah, it you visible. See, yeah, make it visible. Yeah. So everyone knows, you know, you know, who's doing the most work, who's not doing the most work. And at the end of the day, we're like, look, you know, because they all can, I mean, guys complain about things when they don't want to do it, you know. Mm-hmm part of my job is having them do things that they don't want to do but it's beneficial for them but they don't want to do it mm-hmm. they're, they're tall they're sore they don't want to get down on the ground whatever the case may be um, we try to give them reward awards for being consistent and when they don't carry their own weight so at the very least every player should get 100 points for the week if they just follow this path if you are 30 points behind everyone on your team dude you're you're pulling your team down either mm-hmm. you're not conditioning you're not sleeping you're not eating, you're not recovering. There's something you're missing, and we can look it up and see it. So we approach him and say, look, he's 30 points down. They say, look, you get 30 points down. Like, come on, man, what are you? Mm-hmm. Let's go. So it becomes this environment where we're all being competitive to keep each other healthy, and that's when, you know, you really start to just see some beautiful things from guys just being consistent because they feel better at the end of the day. That's really cool. <laughs> yeah, I think there's a lot of stuff like that that's sort of pioneered yeah. in the sports world that yep. doesn't really make its way to the – you know, the more like corporate or, or business yeah. world because everyone has like that direct relationship with yeah. their boss. Yeah. But you have no idea if someone else is pulling their yeah. weight. So that's that's really interesting. Yeah. Something else I'm interested in is, and I think a lot of people listening will be as well, there are characteristics that you could find, for example, in a in a pro basketball team, in, in pro basketball players that would really translate to success in any field. Yeah. Like let's say um, take a player with just amazing training drive. Um, you know, that would translate to research drive if they had another job or if they're practicing some other kind of skill what are some or even one quality or or habit that you've noticed in your players that you've actually taken into your own life personally to help you be better at what you do it's just probably you know uh and i've seen a lot of you know basketball players over the years i've been a couple all-star games obviously i've been watching all the players across the league and the fact that we had a couple big names here always listening to eavesdropping when guys having conversations about just, you know, being a pro. And I think the biggest thing is just grit. You know, just when things don't go the right way, you know, they can push through it. You know, when you have these different draft picks and you're drafting people, those are the things you just don't even see. So you may have a kid who's the same amount of talent, the same wingspan, can run and jump at the same level as the top pick. Um, But when things don't go their way or if things aren't going right with the team, that's when you really notice the side of that player that would determine if you probably would choose them or not. And it's just grit. 
It's just, you know, having the capacity to keep your head down when things aren't going right and pushing through it and just, you know, growing from that experience. The best players are ones who are just, they have enormous amounts of grit. And I've watched that and I use that. And, you know, when things don't go my way, we're losing games or, you know, we have a long road trip and, you know, we had a couple injuries or, you know, things just happen and that I can't control and you just, you're so tied to the emotional state of the team that it could weigh on you, you mm-hmm. know, but I've learned and programmed myself to be that rock because guys expect the strength coach to be someone who they can always go to, go to no matter what, who's always going to be consistent. So I've learned that, you know, if you have enough grit, you know, and you know what that is for you, um, you'll be able to push through a lot of different things that you probably couldn't push through, whether it be, you know, making a decision to do something today that you probably put off for a month or two. Um, you know, being able to kind of look at an environment and figure out the best way to navigate through it without taking a shortcut because it's going to take a long time to get somewhere if it's worth it. And when things don't go your way, you know, just keeping that same focus and that same intensity and passion towards something you want. And that's just, that's grit. That's what separates probably the best players from the average players. I like it. And that segues very nicely into the next thing I wanted to ask you. Um, which is, it could be something from your, um, your career with the Knicks or even before that, uh, it could be something in your, in your personal life outside of work. Yeah. Speaking of grit, what would you say has been one of, if not the biggest challenge that you've ever faced and what did you do to overcome it and what did you learn from it? Um, biggest challenge, I probably have several, but, um, well, probably one would be uh, I had a family member who was murdered, you know, and, you know, obviously that that's a devastating thing to experience. And, you know, you really don't know, you know, exactly how to respond to that until you are actually just in it. Right. And it was a brother. So it was someone who uh-huh. I was extremely close to, you know, someone who I had just spoken to. And, you know, we had plans for the weekend and, you know, abruptly that was taken away. And I had no no answers. I had nothing. And, you know, no matter what. I thought I was, you know, at that moment when I heard that or I experienced that, it was like, you know, nothing else mattered. You know, the, mm-hmm. my job didn't matter. The team didn't matter. And, you know, that just taught me a lot about, you know, just being able to appreciate, you know, just enjoying the time that you have and the thing that you love to do and just giving your all, you know. So just experiencing that and going through that for a year and a half and like, you know, really trying to get into my soul as far as, you know, what does life really mean? Um, it just taught me that, you know, I'm not ever going to leave any stone unturned. You know, I'm not going, you know, put things off that, um, I probably would have in the past. You know, I'm not going to not meet my niece at the train station because I don't know what could happen Mm -hmm. on that train ride going home. So, you know, it just taught me that put things in perspective, you know, if you have an opportunity and the universal laws are on your side, whatever you have to do to use that momentum in the right direction with what you have. And you know that because you can feel it because you're firing all cylinders go for it. I mean, just do it. Like, don't wait. You go for it. And whenever you have an opportunity to, to, you know, make a difference in someone's life that is close to you, you, you honor that and you, you know, and it's okay, you know, cause we get in this tendency to also, you know, put things to the side that we think is going to be there. Mm-hmm. Right. Because we all live in New York city. We're all young, you know, we're all just trying to get to the top and through all of that, you know, grinding and leaving not not leaving any stone unturned and you know just trying to really maximize your potential with the salt with a lot with the laws of you know the universe on your side i think it also taught me you know just keep things in perspective you know there's always going to be opportunities to continue with that an hour later if you have that hour mm-hmm. um but the things that really matter you should always keep it close and try to make time for family you know, as soon as you can yeah absolutely i think it'd be a, a big part of um being able to prioritize, you know, get yeah, your priorities you know, in order is, yeah. is just immersing yourself in the right places. Yeah. Like, for example, I, all of my family is outside of the country. Yeah. I don't have any family yeah. in the United States. Yeah. And um, my parents live in Switzerland. Yeah. So I'm on WhatsApp pretty often with, you know, like my mom, my dad. <laughs> yeah. um, and, you know, sometimes you're working. And I say sometimes, and really, it's a lot of the time. Like, yeah. you get that text and you're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like you put your phone <laughs> to the side. It's like, I'll get there. Um, you know, they're there. You know, it's yeah. fine. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it's like you're saying, like, you don't know if someone's always going to be there. Know. But yeah. at the same time, like, whenever I go and visit them and I'm actually face to face with them or in the same house, I'm like, this is what matters, you know? Yeah. Or like when you're with your friends, you're like, this is what matters. Yeah. Or especially living in New York <laughs> and you go outside and you have like more than three trees around you and you're like, 
this is important um yeah. but when you're in you know stuck in your office or whatever it is and you're like on the subway and you've got like like 17 iphones around you and like it's it's chaotic and it's chaotic. you get tunnel vision get t- yeah um and those things around you seem the important things seem less important because it's sort of like out of sight out of mind yeah. and i think taking the initiative to put yourself in those situations yeah. with family with nature with friends um really keeps that fire stoked. i agree um, and I just want to, I don't want to stick on this point for too long, A, because I just don't want to kind of make you have to talk about it for too long. And I also want to be mindful of your time. But I think a lot of people listening will have, you know, maybe lost a family member, maybe even yeah. recently. Yeah. Um, any advice for how someone gets out of that? Because it's got to be one of the most, you know, devastating things you could ever deal with. Um, you know, I guess depending on how close the person is, you, you just have to kind of, it makes you just question like, you know, your purpose kind of. You know, like, am I just going through the motions today? Like, am I am I involved in some type of job or activity and I'm just on cruise control? Meaning, like, you just you get up every morning, you make your coffee, you walk your dog, you watch TV. Whatever your, nat- your natural way of going about your day, are you just cruising, right? So I think when something like that hits home, it makes you just kind of, like, shake up things that you just you know, we're used to just doing. So your morning routine becomes different. You know, you start to, you know, meditate or you start to read. You start to, you know, um, watch a different show or listen to a podcast. You start figuring out if, you know, what you thought you were doing really was what you should be doing. And um, you just, you probably end up changing some things around because it makes you realize that you're probably just living in cruise control until something shakes you up and wakes you up to kind of, reassess it before it's too late you know because we all have an expiration date at some point it's inevitable and i think we should never spend any time doing things that we just don't feel like we should be doing Mm -hmm. and the hardest thing to do is to make a decision to stop it and sometimes it takes something very very devastating to shake it up and that might be a sign for you to just you know change now before you are 80 years old and looking back and say man i should just do what i wanted to do as opposed to just doing what society thought I probably should be doing or, or doing what I thought was just okay. No, don't be okay. Do what you thought you could do when you were a kid and just go for it. Right. Know? Yeah, it's funny you mentioned the, the, the when you were a kid part right at the end. Yeah, it's like when you're a kid, you think, oh, man, I can do this, I can do this. And you what? Get, you, you're you get, so genuinely yeah, excited about certain happened? things. And there's no there's no filter of like, but will this make me money? Or or how will this you know? look on social? It's like things that you just enjoyed, like looking for bugs under rocks. Like, do whatever it. the hell you do. <laughs> just do it. Like, why can't you do that as a career? Yeah. And know? then you look back and you're like, oh, well, maybe I should have gone into, um, I don't know, biology or, yeah. or something like that. And I think a lot of us, um, I have a lot of friends um, around my age as well who are just, you know, towards the top end of, of millennials. Yeah. Where, where um, I, I wouldn't say personally for myself right now because you know I've, I've been very lucky to end up in men's health and yeah. um, I, I love the work I'm doing here. I would but say yeah. I've, I have a lot of friends who are in mostly in the financial sector who are now looking back and thinking and talking about what did we like really enjoy as kids? Like I fucking hate this job. Um, yeah, like, you know it's like get out of here. And, like they've made <laughs> enough money where they've got a bit of a cushion. They can experiment yeah. with something new. Yeah. Um, and really, a lot of these guys are even at the point where it's like, I'll drop. 40 50 percent of my salary like i i just want to be happy at this yep. point like their jobs are just crushing yep. them and you look back to your childhood you look back and that's why i think you know that's what's going to happen when you have when you do experience those type of experiences you go back to that joyful moment when you were a kid and you're like why am i not feeling that way now about what the current work i'm doing and mm-hmm. you will probably end up changing some stuff around because that's what i had to do now speaking of changing stuff around um you know implementing new things in your life taking out things that aren't working what would you say, uh, I would put a time on this, like the last two years, but really I'll let you kind of go with whenever. Um, what would you say is the best habit that you've implemented personally um, in recent memory? One thing that you thought, I'm going to give this a try. And you started doing it and it was just like, wow, this is a game changer. Uh, I can tell you that right away. is the, the morning time I have, um, I spend 10 minutes, I journal, right? And you I, journal? I journal, I have to. And within that journal, I write down, what I want my day to look like, like what's a good day for me. And that started a couple of years ago when someone gave me a book, the five minute journal. And it starts with three things you're grateful for, um, three things that will make today great. And then before the, before you go to bed, what are three things that happened today that were great? What could you have done better? So I got there a couple of years ago and once I finished, I said, you know what, why don't I just take 10 minutes now, double that time and just write down what I want my day to look like. 
Um, and then at the end of the day, you know, look back at what I thought my day should look like based off of the tasks that I had listed down. Mm-hmm. And what that does for me is because, you know, my life going into pro sports is, is chaos. So you're you're walking and you're dealing with people. And it's, it's not even just pro sports, it's any environment. You know, you can't control the baggage that anyone else is bringing into your environment if you work with people every day. So you always have to kind of have an internal balance because if you don't, I just feel like, you know, you're going to react to so many different situations that you're going to end up unhappy at the end of the day because you weren't prepared to deal with other people's perceptions or baggage or whatever else they have going on in their personal life. So taking 10 minutes out of my day in the morning before I even do anything else keeps me centered and I can always use my journal as an anchor. Mm. So when things arise or when I arrive to work, I'm always the same person. You know, if there's a conflict of interest with a management or, you know, with a player, um, I kind of go back to, okay, what are my tasks today? Is this really that important? You know, is it, is it really, for me to get aroused about this situation today, is that even part of what my day should be like? Meaning the tasks I have to get done professionally and then personally what I want that stuff to look like. If it's not on that list, I can easily just kind of filter it out and just deal with it later and f- stay on task with what I'm supposed to do. Otherwise, if I don't have that list, I'll be pulled in every different direction. I'll be out of balance and I won't be my best self. So that is what probably helped me the most is the 10 minutes of journaling and then reflecting at the end of the night um, back on that journal. Wow, I, I love that you use the word anchor. I think that's such yeah. a great way to describe yeah. it um, to kind of pull you back to that central point. Yeah. Now, just to sort of logistically, because I think people will hear that and, and want to try it. Do you Are you writing out like full sentences like today I want to blah? Yeah. Just, are you doing a bullet point kind of checklist? It's a bullet point. You know, I'll start with, okay, my top five tasks. Okay, those are my top five tasks I need okay. to do today, right? And then I have, okay, why? Do I need to do? Do I need to do this stuff? So I, I think once you tell yourself the why behind why your tasks are your tasks for today, it's easy to start writing down. Okay, why am I doing this? Because I'm doing it for this. Because this is what I love to do. This is what I have to get done today. This is what my pat my passion, my purpose is. And then just journaling about you know like, I hope today you know goes well. You know I would love to uh, get off work at four four o'clock, maybe see a buddy for some coffee. Maybe watch the second half of a game, you know, get to bed at a reasonable hour, play with my dog for 10 minutes. Like, that's just, you just write down stuff and you just kind of go through that day and you start focusing on what makes you happy to get to those points. And you can't fit everything in every day, um, but over time you start, you know, really gaining some, some, some steam here and you start firing and you do accomplish that stuff. And all the stuff that you're pulled into, you just won't get pulled away from it because... You already know what makes you happy, and it's what you're gonna to stick to anyway. You know. Well, I hope you schedule more than ten minutes for playing with your dog because <laughs> I know your dog. Her name is Sophie, and she's a blue Frenchie, and she's oh the cutest God. dog in the oh entire world. Actually, I remember at the um, the the box bike burn charity that we organized with a couple friends uh, a few months ago. Um, we had a photographer there, and we went from you know gym to gym, three gyms, yeah. like forty people, uh, tons of photos. And I'm pretty sure there were more photos of Sophie than of any athlete in that <laughs> entire group. Yeah, I will say, you know, that, that's part of probably something I've changed. So I've always, as a kid, I always wanted a dog. You know, you always, you know, you have a, you picture your life a certain way, right? Um, for some weird reason, you know, I, I picture me as, at Central Park, walking my dog, having like a coffee and a big coat. You know, that's just, it that makes me feel good about, you know, what I always said I wanted to do. So, you know, getting a dog, you know, um, one, it was irrational. I, I shouldn't, my, the way my schedule was, my lifestyle, I should not have gotten a dog. But it goes back to what am I waiting for? You know, there's never, for me, there's never going to be a right time to get a dog because I also just co-founded a startup. And you know anything about startups, unless you sell the company for a certain amount of money, you're always going to be bootstrapping. It's 24 hours. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't see any time for me to ever get a dog and raise a dog on my own. Um, and I just was like, you know what? I, I wanted, I always wanted a dog. I always wanted a French bulldog. And um, it taught me a lot, man, about just staying disciplined to a routine. Obviously tonight, she's probably starving right now because my schedule's all over the place oh, today. But No, um, no getting, I feel guilty. <laughs> no, no, I don't feel guilty at all. Um, but it, it forces me to, you know, get up at the same time every day, mm-hmm. you know, because it's a puppy. I got her, she was three months old. I don't have anyone helping me besides an app called WAG. Um, but <laughs> That's the dog walking app. <laughs> That's the dog walking right? app. Yeah. <laughs> but every morning has to be the same, you know, everything just has to be the same, you know, and um, I like having that personal bond with something that I'm training 
to be disciplined. I just like it. You know, she's she's amazing. She's a dog. I never had a dog on my own. And um, it's just teaching me a lot more compassion, being more disciplined, and also just, like, learning to enjoy and embrace smaller things in life than just running around 100 miles an hour all day, every day of my life. Do you use so, any um, training technique that maybe you used on, like, Mellow in the day? to now try and dogify that for Sophie. <laughs> <laughs> you're just like, you're a master of training and now you've got a little puppy. I'm no, curious, are you a good puppy trainer? I am. Well, she, um, she's, she can give me her paw. Um, she plays with the basketball. Can she do a layup? She can't do a layup yet, but she can dribble <laughs> the basketball. Um, but the hardest thing has been trying to get her to walk in the cold because mm. she's so small. I mean, she's, yeah. that's been the hardest task and I've just been learning to use it, with, do that with treats and a certain type of tug on the leash. So I'm learning the basics. That's the basics awesome, of doggy training is the <laughs> you basics. need the basics to keep you grounded I would say yeah it's the beginner's mind you gotta be a beginner in something and I'm a beginner in a lot of things but I can tell you right now I'm raising a puppy I'm definitely a beginner because the minute I think that I've accomplished something and that's in anything the minute you think you accomplished something there's always gonna be something to smack you back down and say here we go I mean, yeah. stay grounded let me stay humble and um, I'm learning that with a puppy, but I also learn that just in life, man. It's like you, you think you get to a certain level and you might feel like you know a lot and you don't because there's always going to be something that you can learn and that it might hit you at the right time or the wrong time. But um, I think every experience is worth something and you always have to start any experience with a beginner's mind, whatever it is, at whatever level, whatever level you're at. It's just always having a beginner's mind because you can never learn enough about something you're involved in. I love that. Well, Bar, I know you have places to be. Um, before we cut the tape here, how can people find you online? Twitter, Instagram? Where, Instagram. where do you want people to find you? <laughs> Instagram is probably the best way. Um, at Mubarak Malik, M-U-B-A-R-A-K-M-A-L-I-K. Um, I'm always posting stuff about you know the team, videos, different events that we have going on. Um, I'm involved in a new project. It's a nutrition coaching app that we that I just started. It's a tech-enabled coaching service, one-on-one personalized. We're going to put a, a called, link to that in the show yeah, notes so people can find it's it. It's called at Join Phoenix. And, uh, yeah, so we're, you know, I'm just trying to Im- impact people's lives in a positive way. You know, use the experience and the tools that I've been given and studied and try to make people live a better, better life. And hopefully that leads to longevity and prosperity and we all just have a better, better world because of it. It's, it's a great app and a lot of yeah. um, p- people that we know mutually are, yeah. are sort of, you know, experts yep. and, and things on there. Yeah. Um, Dave Ote from Equinox, yeah. uh, <laughs> love that guy. He's referred yeah. so many great people to me just for shoots and things like yeah. that. And I know he's a wealth of knowledge. <laughs> yeah. and he's just one of many experts yeah. you guys have. So I'd encourage everyone to check out Phoenix. Yeah. But like I said, awesome. we'll put a link to that in the, yeah. in the show notes. Bart, thank you again for taking the time, man. Dean, it's been you, awesome. Man. It's overdue, man. I appreciate it. <laughs> All right. Done. Good. Hey guys, Dean here again. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you enjoyed that, because there is a lot more to come. I will continue to release a new episode every other week, so stay tuned for that. And in the meantime, head over to gammaprojectpodcast.com for episode notes, blog posts, and other things related to the show. And here's an idea. If you like what you just heard, hit us up with a star rating, or even write a review. That stuff really helps. Once again, this episode is brought to you by Ultra. Ultra, that's A-L-T-R-A, makes shoes that allow you to run the way that you were born to. This spring, Ultra wants you to embrace the space with their collection of zero-drop running shoes featuring the brand's signature foot-shape toe box. Get fired up for taking your runs outside again with their lineup of fast and light road shoes which includes models like the Ultra Duo, featuring 31mm cushioning beneath both the forefoot and the heel. It also weighs in at a crazy light 7.5 ounces. The Ultra Duo is available at fleetfeetsports.com through March, and that's F-L-E-E-T-F-E-E-T, sports.com. And you can also head over to ultrarunning.com for dozens of other models and styles. I would definitely recommend checking out their trail section while you're there. When it comes to taking my runs off-road, there isn't another brand that I will wear, and that is a fact. You can find all of that, plus some outstanding advice and tips that I've personally used to correct my own running form, at ultrarunning.com. That's A-L-T-R-A-R-U-N-N-I-N-G.com. 